<laughs> Pot of gold. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Ramble by the River. I'm your host, Jeff Nesbitt, and we've got another great show for you this week. Possibly one of my favorites so far. It is Saturday, August 21st, 2021. And you found the Ramble. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ramble by the River. You can find us on Twitter at Ramble River Pod. And you can find all of this information along with the email to contact me for guest suggestions and any kind of useful links that you might hear in this episode right there in the show notes. It's been another crazy, hectic week. It never ends, of course. It's always crazy and hectic. But yeah, it's been great. Things are happening with the podcast. We're moving and we're shaking. So I just wanted to give you guys a little update. The website, ramblebytheriver.com, has not really changed. I have not had a minute to work on it. Eventually, I want you to be able to go there for getting merch, go in there for message boards, a blog, or all that stuff. All the stuff that you would expect. Because, you know, we fancy like that. So that's something to look forward to. And another announcement. So I'm not exactly sure when this is going to take effect, but at some point in the near future, we are going to change the structure of Ramble by the River. (sighs) Yeah, no big deal, but I got to shake it up a little bit. So what's going to happen is instead of it just being one regular episode a week, as always, as it has been since the last, I don't know, what is it now? Nine months? That will still be available for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and every other platform that you have been getting it from. However, there will be an additional episode offered for a subscription. And that subscription won't be expensive, but with that payment, you'll be entitled to exclusive episodes that are only available to subscribers. So those episodes will be basically an extended version of the free episodes. Everything you get in the free episodes, plus all the spicy stuff that we couldn't leave in there because of tender ears who we don't know are listening. I'd like to be able to be streamed all over the world. And this show is obviously quite explicit at times. And that's part of the charm. You know, that's at least that's what I've been told. But that isn't going to fly in places like India, where, you know, I don't know, it's something like the third largest population in the world. And none of them get to listen to Ramble by the River because we say fuck too many times. So I'm thinking we'll make a kid-friendly version that has bleeps and blurps for the swear words. It'll be shorter. It'll be quicker. Also, not everybody wants to listen to the two-hour podcast. Some people just want a shorter podcast. I'm going to give it to them. So condensed version will still be free forever, always, on every platform as it is now. And... Starting soon, we're also going to have a subscription version for the Ram fam who really want to ramble hard, you know. And in addition to extended episodes, the premium episodes, the subscription will also get you bonus episodes that are exclusive to the subscription and will not be available anywhere else. There's going to be behind the scenes, sneak peeks, early access to material, all kinds of stuff, guys. All kinds of stuff. We might even do a raffle. Who knows? Uh, Q&As, meet and greets all kinds of stuff and right now it's just a transitional phase so we're getting things set up and moved over to the new structure but yeah that's still going to be the place where you can find the most up-to-date information updates i'll post the episodes there and try to throw on as much bonus content as possible even before 
January when the actual switchover happens. Basically, this is where I'm gonna start putting the majority of my creative energy is into these subscribers. I'm going to invest in them so they're gonna get the best stuff and they're gonna get it before everyone else. And it's gonna be a great relationship that I hope lasts many years. So I really am excited about it. Patreon will be one of the places where you can find the premium content and also through Apple Podcasts. You'll be able to subscribe with both of those. And right now, Patreon is available. I'm looking forward to creating some awesome podcasts. I have some really cool guests lined up and it's gonna be great. Season two is going to be a fucking blast. So if you have enjoyed these episodes, this is episode 40 or 41, and you want to support the show and help me make more, just go on over to patreon.com slash river and subscribe. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash river. Thank you. The episode you're about to hear is one of my favorites. Devan and Hubert is a very interesting guy. He's got a great story, and he tells it very well. You get to hear all about his life from growing up in the South and in the church and how he was persecuted as a gay man in the church, and he joined the military. He was a military recruiter. He did so many things, but long story short, he travels from religion to the streets, homelessness, drugs, mental illness, risky behavior, a lot of risky behavior. Man, some risky behavior. Devannon. Whew. And comes out of it okay. And we talk a lot about redemption and what it means to be a Christian and what it doesn't mean to be a Christian. And a lot of stuff about God, a lot of stuff about spirituality, a lot of stuff about drugs, sex, a lot of stuff about very taboo topics. Devannon is the host and creator of the podcast, Sex, Drugs, and Jesus. He's also written a book called Sex, Drugs, and Jesus, a memoir of self-destruction and resurrection. And this covers his story, much of what we covered on the podcast today, including his HIV diagnosis and his trip to rock bottom and back. He's a great dude. I think that uh, we kind of established a bit of a friendship. This episode is going to be interesting whether you are interested in religion or drug use or homelessness or people from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Devannon's charismatic and we had a good rapport and it just flowed nicely. Some of the themes that permeated the whole thing were really positive and they're exactly the kind of themes that I like to promote on this show. So things like inclusion, tolerance, understanding, and when it comes right down to it, practicing love trying to be Christ-like, trying to be good people, trying to accept the hard stuff that has happened around us and, and take it with a grain of salt and learn from it and how to be better. And I really think that it's hopeful. And it, it, it left me feeling really good. So don't listen to this one with the kids in the room. Actually, you know, don't listen to any of them with the kids in the room. I guess it depends on the kids, but this is not a kid show. Not kid appropriate, lots of swear words, talks about dick sucking, cocaine, all kinds of horrible things. So use discretion. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, all that good stuff. And also go subscribe to Devannon's podcast, Sex, Drugs, and Jesus. Without further ado, please enjoy this podcast with the delightful and inspiring Devannon Huber. It could all be worse, I could be a hater like you. Clothes to make the man, but that poison's gonna kill you. 
say it with your chest I'm now. Young, I'm free. Can't nobody take me here and now. It's my time to run it out. It's my time. It's my time. It's my time to run. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. How's it going? Oh, I'm just peachy and fabulous and just grand. How are you? All those same things. <laughs> Looking forward to the interview. Uh, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. They're good. Thank you. I appreciate that. But they're about to get like a uh, hundred times better. In, are you you up in your game? Yeah, I fired everyone who was currently uh, who, who was previously helping me up through episode eight. So from episode nine, I've taken over pretty much all aspects of it, and I feel like it's more intense than it was before. And so yeah, I'm changing like the intro and like everything like that. I'm doing my own show notes, my own editing, and mm-hmm. like everything. And so um, it's a lot of work. It is, but I, I feel like it's the right thing to do. I feel energized to do the work and it's just it just was right because I don't know, can't anybody write stuff the way that I, you know, you can yourself. You know, totally. Sometimes, sometimes you just gotta get into it. But I love your podcast and I love your knowing the arc reference about your beginning and your little biography at the bottom of your web page and what you have concocted in your podcast, what we down here in Louisiana would call a jambalaya. Exactly. Or, uh, <laughs> a little, bit little of mix it. of everything. Mm-hmm. That's the question I actually have. How did you end up starting in podcasting, especially if, if it sounds like you weren't doing it all on your own? How'd you end up getting involved with the people you just fired in the first place? So wait, so are we, what, what recording now, is this for the show or are we just kind of like talking right now? Uh, it could be either one. Either we, one. You want to just okay. do you want to just roll into it? Yeah, Kinda I just wanted out. to know before I start talking shit about people. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I totally. Um, uh, which it is what it is. So I don't really care if anyone knows uh, because um, how did I meet them? I met them because the individual who I'm collaborating with to write my, my memoir hired them to uh, like he has like people who like just a, a scattered group of creatives who do things like work on audio or podcasts you know he's one of those people who do this new business model of they don't really know what to do but they'll find the people who can do it and charge them and then they'll take like probably more of the profits or some shit like that yeah and so i don't really know how much respect i have for that business model i don't really have any respect for it at all but because it's like hustling and pimping people if you do that's that, exactly what it is <laughs> so, yeah. so um so that's how i met them hey it was a great start you know it got me started because when i first started i was like wow the fuck can i cuss on this show like yeah you can say whatever the fuck you want okay cool so like i was like oh fuck do i get started doing doing a podcast you know and you go on the website you know on the internet to search and a thousand different pages come up and so and so that's how I met them, you know, and I think 
but before technology has become what it is, that model may have worked. But now you don't need people to help you find guests to come on your show. You have several websites out there that can match make for you. Shout um, out Podmatch. Yep, Podmatch is incredible. There's also podit.net and matchmaker.fm. Oh, yeah. And then you can use like Descript to do your own editing and stuff like that. I have started to really love Descript. Right. And so, yeah. and so shit, like, so rather than paying, you know, $200 per episode for editing, you know, it's more cost effective for me to sit down and just do the shit myself. And then yeah. I can do as many revisions as I want. I can change stuff on the fly. I don't have to send something to somebody. And so anybody out there who's trying to start a podcast, all you need is one of those websites <laughs> we just mentioned and just some editing technology and time. And a shitload of time. To, well, you're going to spend a shitload of money or a shitload of time. Yeah. And time is money. And time is money. Is so, but it's just so unfortunate because so many people don't get started because it's overwhelming or they don't have the money to do it. And I love, I, I love Podmatch a lot because Alex Sanfilippo, who's the owner creator of it, is big on community and bringing us all together so we can help each other. And he gave me a lot of advice that encouraged me to feel like I can do those things myself, like edit and write my own show notes and stuff like that. And so you're not alone. And when you first start off, you're very much alone. Like in, in your podcast, a big thing I was reading, you like the community of it. When COVID started, you, you, you had that lack of community. So you created Ramble by the River to take that place. And so it's all about community. I'm going to be quiet now because you're the host, not me. <laughs> oh, you know what? Uh, Devanna, you can talk as much as you want. It, it seems like you know what you're doing. And yeah, content wise, we can really go wherever wherever the conversation takes us. I, I, you know, honestly, sex, drugs, and Jesus are three of my very favorite topics. If we can throw a little bit of technology, some music in there, I think that we're going to have a pretty complete podcast. Those three things alone, there's just a, a ton there. I grew up in the church very much like you did. And um, uh, your dad was a pastor, right? Is that what you said? My dad, <laughs> far from it. He was <laughs> a pastor. No, he's like a deacon in church now. Now, my 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 closest mentor was my pastor, Evangelist Nelson. Okay. I, I just remember hearing that you had some some influence in your life from leadership in the church, which caused like some uh strife turmoil. Oh, you're you're referring to when I was a worship leader and a kids teacher at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, and then I got thrown out for being LGBTQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be the strife. <laughs> I got kicked out of a church, not kicked out of the church completely, but I got asked to step down from being a Sunday school teacher for getting a divorce. That was a, they didn't want the kids to know that a sinner like me was, you know, still trying to teach them things. I, I really don't know the point of it actually, but it hurt me pretty bad. And, and he, the pastor was cool about it too. He was, he was really trying to do what he thought was right. And it says, it says in the Bible to not get divorced, I guess. And I, I never went back, but it was, it's embarrassing. Well, I'm, I'm going to say to that pastor, fuck you. And, um, because the thing about it is it's very, very arrogant. And, and look, I, when you kick somebody out of a, of a ministry or a volunteer thing that they were doing, you are throwing them out of the whole church. You know, you're not, 
you know, because you're not going to throw somebody out of one part and expect them to come sit back in the sanctuary for a service like nothing's happened. Like you're, yeah. you're, you're kicking them out of the whole thing, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, it, it really did shake out that way. I haven't been back since, so you're probably right. Do you still go to any church? I don't. And it is something that a lot of the time I don't think about it a lot, but every once in a while, I remember I have some memories about my own childhood in the church and there were some really good memories. Vacation Bible school was always a blast, but um, I don't go now. And, and I just, I have a really big problem with the human influence of, of church and how it, how it just kind of taints the interpretation of what God is and, and what God can be in your life on an individual level. All the stuff that involves the group dynamics of church starts to feel really creepy to me because, and, and it's, it's weird because I know that those things, the community aspect of relationships are part of being a human, but I feel like there are, there have been many instances throughout history where certain groups, mostly religious have come in and taken advantage of that need for human connection and that need for community. And they've kind of used it to leverage as a way to control people. And I don't want to be a victim of that. I don't like to see other people be victims of that, especially when they're so wholeheartedly buying in. Mm -hmm. And it gets really complicated to me because I know there's so much value in, in religion, in the parts of religion that bring people together and unite us and teach us about why we're here and how we're special as human beings. We're, we're not just regular animals we're, we're a little something extra but um do you still have a relationship with any kind of religious i don't even want to say just the church specifically but are you still a religious or spiritual person well let me say yeah we're, we're not um you know we're all very very special as it says in the hebrew bible that the lord has made us a little lower than the angels and so you know we are incredible people and we deserve respect and better treatment than what we receive at most churches and so I don't currently attend, and that really started because of the coronavirus. But before yeah. that, I had found a university Presbyterian church, which is here at LSU at Louisiana State University, which is a gay affirming church. And so, and they have like a female pastor, you know, a female co-pastor you know, and everything like that. And so I'm not an advocate of going to church because I don't need the community and that's really the whole purpose of it is for community, but you can get to know the Lord and have a strong spiritual journey and never step foot in the church. It's not necessary. And so for me, myself, no. And even though I could wear a mask and go, I just don't, I don't miss it. I don't miss it because God is here with me and I can study. And to me, the most valuable time in my, in my spiritual walk is my alone time with God, not when I'm around other people. And so if I have to choose the one or sacrifice the other, then churches can get the fuck. Like I don't need them. They're an accessory to, to our spiritual walk. They're not a requirement. Now, what you said is right. They do want to control you. When I, I spent some time in seminary back when I was going to get like a master's in theology and stuff like that. And the guy, the instructor just straight up said, yeah, we want to control people. And that was right. When I stopped, I was like, Okay, and everybody, oh, they're the, all my classmates were like nodding their head in agreement. I was like, no, no, yeah. it sounds like the golden compass. And they wouldn't give them a second, a, se a sequel because the golden compass is all about church control and stuff like that. And so a great phenomenal movie. Watch it if you haven't. And, I'm not familiar with that one. What oh, my God. Nicole Kidman. Oh, it's all about 
just mystical creatures and stuff like that and but how they want to control people and not let them know the truth about stuff the matrix same thing you know it's all about presenting an image of what you want people to believe in the reality of what it is and there's smoke and mirrors smoke and mirrors bullshit <laughs> you know yeah but we are spiritual beings and so we do need to cater to our souls in some type of way because if you don't then you'll be out of balance and then you'll end up with a lot of problems in your life and you're thinking that it's coming from a million different ways and really it's a spiritual ailment that you may have and so I learned a lot about that when I was getting my hypnotherapy certification and training, how problems can present themselves with a root cause can be in some unseen part of us, be it the mind, the soul, or the spirit. So hypnotherapy, that's a really interesting topic. And I think a lot of people, when they hear that word, they automatically picture like, you know, uh, a show in Vegas where they're making somebody cluck like a chicken or, right. or they're, you know, something in cartoons where they're, you know, they're hypnotizing Sylvester the cat. So he's not going to kill Tweety Bird. It's all just like a big joke, but there's a lot of science behind it and a lot of really very real results. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I just want to say that, that, that Tweety Bird is a little bitch and he had it coming. We and all know it. We all know it. <laughs> I've got two cats and they can, I, I don't care what the fuck they do to Tweety Bird. <laughs> and, um, so, right, in the beginning, in the history of hypnosis, it did start out that way. That, that is what you would call a stage hypnotist. Like Franz Mesmer, the guy who started mesmerizing people. Yes, the, the, the name Mesmer and all of that does that's come from Mr. Mesmer. And it did start out that way. A lot of the principles and the concepts transition over into actual medical practice. So the guys up there on stage, when you go in there, everything's over the top and he's doing all of this stuff. And that is to hypnotize people to make them so overwhelmed with what's going on that they become receptive to whatever his suggestions are. Now, some of that, you know, like in Vegas is going to be fake. Some of it can be real. But when you come into a medical facility, the hypnotist is working with your psychotherapist and stuff like that, you know, to to complement, you know, your, your regular mental health regime, regiment. And, um, and the premise of it is the same. You, the, the therapist is going to use different modalities and techniques to overwhelm your conscious mind, which I believe is 12% of your brain. The other 88% is like subconscious and which is your critical mind. So, so like when you go to a movie, for instance, you're in a state of hypnosis why are you in a state of hypnosis? Because we're sitting here watching this movie unless it's not fiction and we know it's fake. And the, the silly girl with big tits is running through the woods and we know she's going to fall. She does it every time. And even though we know it's going to happen, we know it's fake. Our pulses are racing and we're like, girl, get up, bitch. You need to run. You need to run. He's going to get you. He's going to get you. And we allow ourselves to buy into this fantasy for the two hours that we're in the theater and we get out of there and we got all kinds of reactions and we're arguing with our friends and everything. And we know it's not real, but what we're basically living through the big titted girl in the woods. Right. And we vicariously, wanna, and we want to see her again, but we believe what's happening to her is true. And we do that because we're in hypnosis. And why are we in hypnosis? Is because our critical mind has been deactivated because it can only focus on like one thing at a time. So if you've got the sounds from the movie theater, the big visuals, the lights, the smells and being in a new environment, your critical mind is trying to focus on all of that. So therefore it shuts down altogether. 
and then therefore it lets us receive what we're seeing. And so when you come into a hypnotherapy session, we're going to use sounds and movements and things like that. And then we're going to take you into like deep sleep. And then what we're going to do is speak back to you when you're in hypnosis, which means like you're still conscious, you're still present, you're still aware, but you're super chill and super relaxed. And your critical mind is not going to analyze everything that's being told to you and overanalyze it. So if you want to stop smoking or if you want to lose weight or if you want to whatever, we talk about that before the session starts. And then we only speak back to you when you're in that vulnerable state, what you have told us you want to hear in the first place in its basic form. So, so you can trust. Oh, right. It's all about trust. Like there's probably only one person I would let hypnotize me. <laughs> so. That's what I was just thinking. So like, I'm a pretty... Uh, anxious person. So like, I don't trust a lot of people. I definitely don't let people just inside my head. So I've always thought like, I would have a really hard time with hypnosis until I learned a lot about the medical side of it. Like you're saying, I love learning about it. If I was somebody I really trust, I feel like I could let go. But is there a certain point where you have to kind of choose if you're being hypnotized, almost like when all that stuff is happening in your prefrontal cortex and your executive control is like trying to filter through everything and decide what to focus on. And then you, you said there's that point where it becomes overwhelmed and shuts down. Could it also become overwhelmed and just decide to freeze up and close off? Because I know there are some people who they say are just not hypnotizable. Have you seen anything like that? No, that's that's a myth that they debunk, you know, at the beginning of training, because we all go to movies and watch things and we choose to believe it. Therefore, everybody is hypnotizable. <laughs> but it's like, kind of uh, you have to let them hypnotize you. Right. Right. Just like you have to let, you know, Marvel hypnotize you with every Marvel movie we watch and stuff like that. Otherwise, you would be going. There's no such thing as a Black Widow. There's no such thing as Doctor Strange. There's no such thing as Infinity Stones. You know, you would be filtering out everything that just is not reality every second of the day. So absolutely everybody on some level is willing to to bind to a fantasy every now and then. And so it doesn't work that way. Now, there's different techniques, different ways to hypnotize different people. There's a whole study of different mental types and personality types. You know, there's you, people are characterized as like a physical suggestible, emotional suggestible, a somnambulist. You know, there's a whole, and a somnambulist is like somebody who's highly hypnotizable. A physical is somebody who like wears their emotions in their, in their body and emotional actually is somebody who keeps all of their thoughts and emotions in their head. And so people are examined to see where they fall on that scale to see the best way to hypnotize them before anything ever gets started. So there's a whole science and a math and a process behind all that. So it's a very personalized form of therapy. Oh, absolutely. The first, the first session is all about you know, research, getting into what the person's there for to seeing if, if, it's, if they're, you know, really good fit for it and everything like that. It's absolutely personal. There's no way to, to cookie cutter that. And as they taught us in school, you know, a, a good hypnotherapist is going to know many different modalities so they can deal with many different people. And uh, have you heard anything about the uh, like chemical assisted hypnotherapy? I don't even know if that exists, but I know there's a lot of research right now on psilocybin and LSD and, and MDMA and these different kind of chemical compounds that are traditionally used as recreational drugs. But now we're seeing a lot of research come out that says that they're actually going to be useful in treatment for things like addiction and PTSD. Have you ever seen that being combined with hypnosis? That seems like it'd be cool. I think it might be cool, but 
I, it's from what I've heard, everything like that might be in its beginning stages. I would be curious to see how they would combine it because they, you know, in, in class really seemed to, like there was a whole, you know, big class that we did, you know, that was kind of like an anti-drug abuse sort of thing. And so I would be curious to see how they could combine it. I would say everything like that is too new to delve yeah. into because hypnotherapy itself is still new in terms of being accepted in the medical community relative to, you know, time itself. Cause it's not like you can go everywhere and get that, you know, like if you're out in yeah. California, yeah. Here in Baton Rouge, no, <laughs> you know, so hypnotherapy itself is too new to be, in my opinion, to be infusing even more new stuff into it. Maybe 50 years from now, we'll see. Oh God, hopefully they didn't take that damn long. Yeah, stuff moves faster than it used to. We might have some progress before then. But you know, when we go to church and stuff like that, we are in a state of hypnosis there too, because mm -hmm. they use the same thing. Like hip hypnosis starts from the office setup, man. So like, like the, the stage hypnotist in Vegas is going to be sure his stage is uplifted. He's going to have crazy clothes on that nobody else is wearing. This is a part of him reinforcing that he's an expert and you're not. He's on this stage. He's higher than you. You're lower than him. You know, I'm using words you don't realize because my occupation, I'm going to keep it out of your grasp. Therefore, you're you're intimidated by it. You feel inferior to it and therefore vulnerable to it. Blinded by jargon. Blinded by jargon and overwhelmed by all that's going on. Look at that crazy tour twisty mustache, that huge hat, the, the capy gown, you know, and everything like that. So we go in the church while wow, they're up there on that pedestal, those huge Elizabethan king and queen chairs, the Pope everyone's sitting in, you know, all of this is going on. And then not to mention all the different words that you probably can't comprehend and pronounce, you know, because you never heard of them before because nobody talks like that. <laughs> so, like when you go to a Catholic mass and they're wearing like these old guys in dresses with the smoky things and speaking Latin and stuff. I grew up in church. I had never gone to a Catholic mass until I was in my 20s. And I was like, this is some cult shit. Like there, I couldn't believe it. I went to a funeral as a Catholic funeral. And, and this guy who's totally normal guy, nice guy, wearing a suit, just regular white dude. Standing there being normal, all of a sudden he leaves, comes back in a big elaborate gown with a funny hat, and he's speaking a different language. I'm like, okay, the show has started. What what is this? Like, I just it was bizarre. I never see every church is a little different. And uh what you're saying about it being a mass hypnosis is totally right. Humans are kind of we're we're kind of a collective organism. And when you get them all in a group and you, you gotta kind of know how to corral the whole energy and send it the direction you want. It's like, have you ever watched the Triumph of the Will, Hitler's speech, where he's talking to the Hitler youth? I Watch it. It's on YouTube, and it's in German, and you can feel the energy that's in that crowd just from, just from watching their body language and seeing like them interacting with this charismatic leader who they didn't realize at the time was a mass murderer and crazy fuck. But they are just seeing his energy and like that he's saying these things that he's going to protect them and that they're going to you know get all these parasitic forces that are attacking them are going to get wiped out and like turns this horrible message of death and hatred into this thing that's motivating this group of thousands of people and making them feel like they're loved and cared for. And it's bizarre, but that's just the same thing. It's like, it's a mass hypnosis and there's, and this, it just takes a couple 
charismatic supervillains and and you got a big problem on your hands yeah that the way you define that man sounds a lot like the evangelical church movement you know a whole bunch of people motivated to persecute a bunch of people and they all feel great while they're doing it and, yeah and um and see, this is why I always encourage people to study the Bible or whatever religion they want to for themselves, because you never know where that the, the crazy evil bastard, how, however you said it, is going to be hiding in sheep's clothing. You don't know that. It may be Hitler. It may be your, lo your local priest. It may be some televangelist on TV. You know, we got to reactivate our critical mind when it comes to that, because we should not tr trust our minds to, to, to preachers either. I don't care yeah. who they're supposed to be. But our challenge is to not get so jaded, you know, when we have been hurt by the church to abandon God entirely. I did that, you know, when I got kicked out, then I became like a drug dealer and everything like that. And I saw community in the streets because I was like, um, well, they don't judge me when I go to the club and everything like that. So I'll go there. I should have like gotten psychological help because I didn't realize how tra traumatized I was by that. And then went and found a, an, an affirming church. I don't even think I knew about gay affirming churches at the time. Did and, they uh, even exist? Uh, most of the world? I think that that's a pretty small thing. Oh, no, it's a huger, huger. It's a larger movement. I mean, oh, I go think ahead, it was there. I just didn't know. Because, you know, I was coming from the South where such things aren't spoken of. And I went to the military when I was 17. And when I got out, I was basically right at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. So I didn't go and look into any of this stuff because I didn't feel like I needed to. I think that they were there. I just didn't go and look. So were you in the military during uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Yep. So also not spoken of there. Literally, there's a policy for it. There was, and I'm so glad that they repelled that. And so now people in the military can be just as gay as they want to out in the open. And look, everyone was gay in the military any damn way. I've it heard the village people. Right. <laughs> so. In the Navy. In the Navy, in yeah. the Navy, and uh, I was in the Air Force, honey, but I'm telling you, it was a whole lot of semen being squirted uh, uh, all around, I can tell you. It, it, it makes sense. There's a lot of people shoved in one place. They're, they get to know each other pretty well, I imagine. Oh, from day one, even basic training, people, so this is before I realized just how obviously not straight I was to people. You know, guys were like, well, they started picking on me from like day one. And then the other gay guys started showing me like pictures of their boyfriend and shit. And I'm like so naive and country and gullible. And I wish I'm so thank God I'm not anymore. And, you know, just from the beginning, I mean, there's just there's just so much gay shit going on. But it stifled us. We couldn't get married. You know, so I became a hoe. You know, it's not that I didn't want a relationship, but then I know I'm going to have to relocate. So then I just turned into a total slut. And um, and then when I did get picked on, it's not like I could go tell anyone or get help. You know, so I had to just deal with it and be mad about it or, you know, get kicked out. And which if you get kicked out of the military, then that's a whole other different drama for your life that you really just don't want. Yeah. So when did you know that you were gay? Oh, hell, when I was like two or three or whatever, because, you know, my dad had like really hot friends. Then, you know, my brother, you know, us noticed men and honestly kind of girls, too, from the beginning. I know some people try to say it's a choice. That's just foolishness because no angel flies down here and goes, OK, well, what will it be straight or gay to pick? You know, I never picked what I liked. You just like what you like. It's like you discover yourself, like your favorite color, your favorite food. You just try shit. And then whatever you keep coming back to, one day it clicks. This must be my favorite or preference. But and that stuff is 
pre-programmed in your DNA, everything that your mother went through when she was pregnant with you, everyone she was around, all of that stuff has a strong role in who the fuck you end up being. You can't just put yourself together like a robot like that and pick everything you like. Doesn't go that way. So it's not a choice, but it's also not just a, a switch in your body or in your brain or anything like that. It's, it's, it's who you are as a person. It's collection of all your experiences and all your genetics and everything just rolled into a ball. And that's who you are. Pretty much. And look, I tried to get rid of the gayness. Like, so oh, many, really? And like so many, you know, I hated myself. You know, how could I not, you know, everybody, before I learned to think for myself, everybody ever said anything about it, said it was negative. I realized that this isn't changing. It's growing with me as I grow. So how could I not while I'm still listening to the outside voices? So I got girlfriends when I was in California. You know, I had sex with women. You know, I went to God. I prayed and I fasted. And I really, 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 you know, tried to get rid of it all. Just like my counterparts who have gone and married women, had a couple of children. And then they're like 20 years later, you know, I'm still gay. Never mind. <laughs> and, um you know, oops, let's just, let's just have tea girl. And so, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And, uh, and the women are usually really good sports about that. I would have burned some shit down, but what could you do though? It's like, ah, okay. You are who you are. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, you know, so that means that, you know, I hurt a girl in the process of using her as an experiment to see if I can become ungay. And this happens a lot, you know, I'm not a gold star gay. I'm not, you know, a gold star gay is a gay man who's only had sex with other men. But a lot of us are not. And you might find the most flamboyant queen who is not a gold star gay. And now why he had sex with women could be many reasons. It's great. Oh, it is great. I, I mean, vagina is delicious. It's nutritious. I've tasted it. You know, I prefer dick because it's great too. And, um, You know, and I have all kinds of open minded, you know, working theories about sexuality and stuff like that. I'm not that, you know, I'm not like opposed to women. I'm not like, oh, my God, I'm not going to touch that thing and all of that. Mm -hmm. But trying to get rid of my gayness and my sexuality was to cause a tear like in me trying to pull myself in two different directions like that. And no matter how much I prayed and fasted and did all this, nothing ever moved. And the Lord never told me anything was wrong with me. And so how does the Lord speak to us in different ways? An inner voice could be an audible voice with me. I'm a dreamer. I've been a gifted dreamer since I was about four or five. So what I see in dreams come true. I see things about people that they've gone and done. I've seen things that are to come. You know, I might have a dream about storms that are going to come or whatever the case may be. And so, so that is a gift that I have. I have a question. Uh-huh. I uh, sorry to cut you off, but I this is something I'm insanely interested in is okay. dreams and especially prophetic dreams. OK. And um, so I, I have those, too. And a lot of the time it's not something that's hugely exciting or anything. It'll just be something mundane and I'll have a dream about it. And then a couple of days later it will happen. And I'll then I'll remember the dream. And then I'm kind of like, well, did I really have that dream or am I just remembering a dream because I had this experience? And it's kind of a mix with deja vu. But I've also noticed that the more I talk about it, the more it happens. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I've had dreams that I had recurrent for a decade, and then it, it happened. Mm-hmm. There was a, a teacher in high school who I had an issue with, and I and I had this dream that I that I like came up behind him at a vending machine, and he was at 
either it happened at like grocery stores or my high school or just different places. And then it, 10 years later, it actually happened. And I came up to him and he was, he was actually standing like at home Depot looking at something, but like the way the aisle was shaped and the, the vibe in the store, it was like a strong sense of deja vu leading up to the moment where it actually started being the, like the dream script. It was bizarre. Uh, like, do you have uh do you notice that the more you think about stuff like that and the more attention you give to those kinds of, I don't even want to call it paranormal because that's got so much baggage, but just kind of like extra stuff that it happens more often? No, I'm going to say this. Everybody's gift works differently with them. Okay. And so, and I'm going to say this here, just because the church was through with you doesn't mean that God was through with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So your gifting didn't start with the church that kicked you out and didn't end with them either. And so, and then the Bible tells us to stir up the gift that is in us. And so like, it's like that with me with music, because I like write songs and stuff like that. They come to me in my dreams. I have observed that, like, say, if I go set at a keyboard or if I just try to listen and learn different music, sometimes I might get more music. So that's what it sounds like. Kind of like the more you do it, the more you're activating the gift might be going on with you. It depends on how your gift operates with you. So that sounds like that with you, with me, with a dreaming, I'm just, I'm just a very strong dreamer, just naturally that way. Like I breathe every time I nod off, I dream. And so what, what you're having, um, it sounds like to me is a mixture of like prophetic dreams and premonitions and premonitions are kind of like that deja vu feeling like I've been here before. And as it's happening in real time, you already know what's going to happen as though you've already been there, but at the same time, it feels like you have not been there. That's the feeling. And, um, but all of that, all of that is still of the Lord dealing with our mind and our spirits to let us know that he understands what has been, what is and what's going to be. Because true prophecy, true prophecy and, and my my spiritual mentor, my pastor was a very strong prophetess. She had the gift of sight and all the gifts in the Bible and ex exceeded it beyond anything that I've ever seen. Like if she she could tell you what happened to you 15 years ago to the day and what's going to happen to you 15 years from now to the day, period. And so, um, if, but true prophecy is past, present, and future. And so that's how come you're able to see something that many years in advance and it happened because God knows exactly where we're going to be down to the second. And so I, I think that's very awesome the way that your gift is operating in you like that. And I encourage you to pray for the interpretation of your dreams until you begin to understand more. Until that time comes, you can use websites like, oh, dreammoods.com. I find them to be very reliable and accurate. But yeah, dreams are incredible. Now, new age thought and like even like the hypnotherapy, they'll say, well, that's your subconscious talking to you. And they have taken God completely out of any sort of dream interpretation. That's one thing that I do not agree with, with hypnosis. I think that it can be both. But from what you're saying, there's no way your subconscious in and of itself can tell you in 10 years what's going to happen. I would say that that's the Lord. But, you know, how do you feel about your own gift? I like to think about it like I think there's a collective unconscious. Uh, do you, mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the works of Carl Jung? Yes. His stuff is exactly the way that I see the world working mm -hmm. with. There's this some um, ethereal, almost like an internet that we can't see or 
I don't know that we can't see, but we can access, especially through dreams and through meditation and things like that, where somehow we just can do these downloads where we can just take from this collective unconscious. And that's, that's what I think God is, is, is this collective energy that is in everything and it's in all of us and we can access it if we know how it, but it takes work and practice and effort. And that's what people are doing in most major religions when they get really deep and, and they're focused on the inner portion of, of it, the spiritual portion and the soul of, of their own experience and not so much on the social aspect of who brought what to the potluck and whose dress looks good on Sunday. And that stuff is great too. And it's all part of being a human. But I think when you really di dive deep into the introspection and into the, the deep part of the soul, like David, King David in the Bible, he wrote all that stuff about diving deep in the soul and his relationship with God. And even Jesus Christ, like, Lord, why have you forsaken me when the night before he was crucified? I feel like that some days. I rely very much on my connection with God. And people get really weirded out by talking about it because they think that either you're a religious zealot or you're a crazy person or, or something. But really, we're all trying to make sense of this experience that we call life. And some people are completely fine to just take someone else's interpretation, even if that's somebody who died 100 years ago, to take somebody else's interpretation and just adopt it and say, this is what it is. This is what we're doing here. This is what we are and who we are. And I've never been comfortable doing that. I think that everybody who's come along up to this point has done what they can to take the information they had and kind of synthesize it into this view of reality. And I think that there's no reason why every new crop of humans can't do that same thing. And through time, it'll progress and we'll get a better idea of what we are. But what the fuck are we doing here? Like we it's it's not quite as cut and dry as anyone thinks. And I think that it's a it's a constant exercise in learning about ourselves and how to interpret events. And I don't think we'll ever probably get to 100 percent conclusion of like what exactly is going on here. And I, I don't know if that happens after death or, and I, I, I hope it does. That's probably wishful thinking, but I think that I really don't know. I just, I think that everybody has access to these gifts in different quantities, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, there's a lot of mystery out there. And, and so let the mystery remain because that, that drive to learn and to search and to seek is what keeps us alive. It keeps us going. It keeps us wanting to to grow. And, you know, not everybody is going to be a Christian. I appreciate the open-mindedness I hear in the way you speak, you know, and I'm not, I'm not naive either. I know better than that. You know, I'll go down to the Buddhist temple and hang out. I love hanging out with other bald people. You know, it's really, really reassuring. And they have like the best vegetarian food ever, but you know, they don't make me bow to the, the big Buddha statue they have in the temple, but it's, it's a very clear-minded atmosphere to be in. And so I really like going down there to hang out with them. Although I am a believer in Jesus Christ, but I love hanging out with Buddhist people. I don't look at them as people who are going to go to hell. I don't look at them as people who are less than me. I don't look at them like they should not be worshiping Buddha. I don't do that. It's just different than what I am in the story. And, and more and more people are turning to that. I learned about a thing called... Um, that an ex-evangelical, you know, there's people who are leaving the evangelical movement because they're beginning to wake up and to start to, to think about why they believe what they believe and where it came from. So what you were just saying is basically not taking somebody else's beliefs or, or supposed research at face value and engrafting that into your life. 
you know, without vetting it and looking into it for yourself, which is what I constantly preach to people is to stop believing preachers and to look into things for yourself. And as people do that more and more, they're going, okay, this isn't adding up. This isn't quite paying out. And this doesn't match up to what I've experienced in my own life. So we got to take a second look at things. Yeah. And I think a lot of religious professionals are feel very challenged by that point of view because they they think that their job is to kind of tell their flock what is going on you know what the answers are do you think that it's more important in a religious setting to have good questions or good answers well that's a good question <laughs> that you pose right there in a religious setting you need to have both but more than good you need to have fair unemotionally attached and truly objective questions and answers. And so like when I was in church when I was young one time and they were trying to tell me it's evil for me to drink wine and I'm reading in the Bible, well, I can see where excess getting white girl wasted, God might have a problem with, but not sticking my pinky out and enjoying me a nice cocktail on a Friday evening. You know, that ain't the same thing, you know? And so then, then their response was just don't do it. Now, see, I had a good, fair question, but, but the response was not good and fair. So, and it's all about what you're saying. They want to dominate and control, like what I told you, that, that, what they flat out said in seminary to me before I gave them the middle finger, tell them to go fuck themselves. And, but you see, that's not, that, that could be a good rubric by which you could judge whether or not you're in a healthy spiritual institution is if they actually have fair questions and answers. Like if it's an open forum and they actually go through their answers thoroughly, or if they just want to spoon feed you and tell you to shut up. Yeah. That's actually a question I had here about drugs and alcohol to a lot of people, sobriety, it's an all or nothing proposition, especially with 12 step programs and things like that, where people are very much not in control of their own choices because they were either unable to or unwilling to make the correct choices in the past. And so now that they've fallen into these programs that have helped them, they are fully convinced that they can't indulge at all, or it becomes right back to that previous state. And that's, Mm -hmm. to me, that all or nothing mentality, if it's something that you need to, to keep from falling back into that life, I think that it's, it's definitely good. But I think a lot of people are not in that situation. And there are situations where, like you said just now, like if you have a cocktail, when you're trying to, maybe you're trying to witness to people, who knows, maybe you're, maybe you're with a group of people and you're, you could actually help these people to see a good example uh, of what, I don't know, what a spiritual person could be who does indulge in a, a cocktail and it helps you loosen up and it helps you talk or there are instrumentational ways to use these drugs Mm -hmm. that may enhance your experiences and may enhance the results of what you're trying to do. And do you think there's a way to use chemicals that doesn't lead to that big slide down into, you know, sucking dick for Coke? Oh, I've done that before. No, (laughs) no, I just suck dicks for free because I love sucking dick. But, but to answer your, (laughs) answer your question, man, absolutely. Because here's the thing, I had a dream a long time ago, back when I was first called when I was like four or five. And, and it's like the Lord was explaining to me in this dream that in order for you to, to win a soul, to witness to people, you have to have a common ground 
you have to have a common bond or as people might say it today um no one cares what you know they know how much you care and so you can use anything cleverly if you want to what you're saying is to demonstrate a higher form of self-control hey i can worship jesus and i can have a margarita and it's fine sometimes it'll make it better you might want to worship jesus more you'll really be in the spirit then <laughs> and so and so i agree with that it's an open-minded way that you're looking at that now in terms of whether or not you can have a a, a drug or a drink and not go off the rails whereas you used to before i think so look i i when we get when we get done with this interview i got my wine already aerating on my cocktail table and that's going to be my reward um are you a wine guy are you a connoisseur if it was my last drink it's going to be the first thing jesus started with is going to be some red red wine that's beautiful but, man but i do have like four different vodkas, a couple of different gins, you know, and you know, dark liquor than everything. Cause I used to be a bartender, you know, mm -hmm. a bar cart and everything too. So now I drink it all. Um, but okay. So I'm, I'm currently going through the 12 steps with a sponsor. I've been in and out of, I've read the books, the anonymous alcohol is anonymous, crystal meth anonymous, you know, and things like that. So I do not think that once an addict, always an addict, once you've always had a problem, you always have to have a problem. And this is a reason why, you know, I'm just gonna, I want to go through these 12 steps one time this because it hasn't been official, but I can tell that I'm not going to want to do it after the 12 steps, after completing it once, because what they want you to do is to keep doing those same 12 steps again and again and again for the rest of your life. As you stated, because if you have one more drink, or take one more drug and you're going to lose everything. And it's a fear-based program. And this is something that I have a problem with because, well, in the Bible, it tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And these programs put the fear of like whatever your intentions are and they into you. And so they want you to keep re 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 recertifying to yourself that if you have another drug or another drink, you're going to end up back on the street and there's no other way because they don't trust you to do better. And so a question that I brought up was, okay, but this is a spiritual program. And if I'm choosing Jesus Christ as my God, then can't he heal everything? Then why can't he heal me of this? You know, why do I have to have this problem forever? And yeah. so that this, all this things question, are possible through Christ. All things are possible. And so the answer that I got was the healing part is the fact that I can be around drugs, but not use them and not go completely off to the races, as they say. But I think it depends on you. It's according to your faith, be it onto you. And what a lot of us do are have like a lot of sober time. You know, we might go out and try a drug or two and see if it really gets to be that wild, like they said, you know, it was going to be. And if it does, do we have the power to stop ourselves? I did that experiment. And you know what? it started to get to be too much. And then I stopped. Whereas before, if I did some math with my drug of choice, though I did them all, you know, then I would fucking get high, you know, every day, all day, several days in a row. And so, but I just don't enjoy it anymore, just organically, just for what it is. And yeah. so I chose not to pursue it. I don't think it's wrong to do drugs, but it, for me, it's just, that's just not who I am anymore, but I don't well, think it's wrong. I have a question. If you had other stuff going on in your life during that time that was keeping you from being able to get high all day long. Is there any chance you would have maybe just got high a little and then gone to work or gone to see your friends or whatever? I think a lot of what drives addiction is bad environments. People who are not living a life that they're happy with, or that's not providing to them what they need to feel whole. 
And so they're finding that wholeness in a chemical, which is easy and quick, and it works most of the time. There's a huge drawback with the fact that it kind of wrecks your mind and becomes something that really takes control of you eventually if you let it. But I just finished a book a couple of months ago called Drug Use for Grownups. And it was by Dr. Carl Hart, I think. And it was really kind of eye-opening about how it looks at the drug problem in our country and the particular, the opioid epidemic. And he points out a lot of really useful pieces of information about socioeconomic status in some of these really hard hit areas. And it's poor people. Poor people use drugs in a much more damaging way than wealthy people because their life sucks. And who wouldn't want to escape that bullshit? Right. Well, sure. And that's what that part of the whole what sobriety movement I do like because it causes you to focus on the point when you were doing drugs for fun to when it became like an emotional crutch. So that's something that you do have to be careful of is that you are partying for the sake of partying and that your life responsibilities are not being neglected and that you're not, okay, my girlfriend with me, so I'm going to go shoot up some cocaine tonight, you know, and it can happen so quick that you don't realize it. Now that's two different, that's two different things there. And so in that particular situation, a person might want to go into some sort of recovery to be sure and get themselves sorted out. But when you do partake, it needs to be for something productive. Maybe you want to reach a different state of enlightenment, try meditation, try hypnosis, or just go and have fun. But you can't be doing it because of like a broken heart or some sort of pain, because then you'll begin to associate the numbing of that pain with the pleasure of the drugs. And then you can turn into an addict or somebody who, who, who misuses drugs, whereas you weren't one before. But yeah, you know, that makes a like, lot of sense. But we like dangerous things in life. So drugs has that sort of like cutting that double-edged swordness to it. You know, some people yeah. like roller coaster. Some people like to try to cook the books at Fortune 500 companies. You know, everybody has wants to do something that has a little bit of taboo to it. But the discrepancies around what sobriety is supposed to be, like me, the fact that I have wine. Even in even in the program that I'm doing the 12 steps in, they're like, that's like a relapse, 100% relapse. And um, I'm like, no, that's not what relapse is to me. You're not going to tell me what it means to relapse. And so you can make suggestions, <laughs> but you're not going to, to make up my mind for me. And so this has given rise to harm reduction, which is a new movement now. And then a harm reduction is like a step down program. Instead of telling people you got to quit everything in the day. So if you like to shoot up an eight ball of meth every day, well, why don't we step you down to a teener or like a half an eight ball of meth every day, and then we'll take you down from there. Or why don't we switch you over to cocaine, you know, and then we'll step you down from there. So it's, so that's harm reduction. That's a, a thing that they're doing now, you know, in medical facility, you know, it's a medical treatment. Would uh, needle injection sites and the needle exchanges, are, is that a form of harm reduction? Yes, all of that plays into that because you're providing people a clean outlet. There's the same people who counselors who would go out and do harm reduction. I mean, do harm reduction therapy are the same sort of people you're going to find handing out clean needles and stuff like that. Because this is not a condemnation of what people are doing. It's not even telling them that they necessarily need to, to stop everything or to stop it all right now. But what's a healthy way to, to acknowledge the fact that no matter what, you're going to get high. We know that this is going to happen, period. There's no other way around it. You're going to go and get your dope today. So now what's the safest way that we can do this 
And then if you feel like that you've gotten out of hand with it, then how can we slowly wean you off of it over time instead of a shock of stop today? You know, it's another option for people, you know, it rather than imposing morality, like from a government standpoint or an authoritarian standpoint where, you, you know, the leader chooses what's moral behavior. And if they decide drugs is not that, then they're going to impose that on the populace. And that doesn't really seem to work because people have their own intrinsic morality and drugs don't violate it for many people. But see, the thing is, you've got to know yourself spiritually and you've got to be in contact with your soul to be clear on exactly where your boundaries are and what your morality is or is not. And so like, like we were saying earlier, you know, your spirit and your soul is a third of who you are. You know, and if you're not catering to that in some sort of conscientious, direct intentional way it's going to be hard for you to really manage yourself and you don't have to be a christian but you need to be doing something so that you can know when you're getting out of line stuff like that but the anonymous program you're right is very churchy to me for instance this is the line of bullshit when i knew i couldn't stay in it but i also didn't want to leave until i had gone through the process so i can see what it all is about because it has been helpful but the Alcoholics Anonymous does not define coffee and tobacco as mood and mind altering substances. <laughs> and I was like, I read this and I, and I asked my sponsor, I was like, so do you define coffee and tobacco as mood and mind altering substances? His response to me was the program does not define them as such. So I was like, okay, so the program tell, is telling you what to think about this. But anybody with a fucking brain knows that fucking coffee and cigarettes are mood and mind altering substances so how in the hell are you going to say that them two things are good but then meth and cocaine are the devil when you can't wake up without fucking coffee and you know that you want cigarettes to relax you and where does sugar fall in there it's a food but it's also definitely a drug It, it can be if you use it wrong or sex, sex. I mean, I know there's sexaholics, anonymous, sex and love addicts, uh, but it, all these things that are able to change how you feel in the moment and able to affect your decision making process, which is going to change how you feel in subsequent moments. These are all considered drugs to me. They are. They, they are. And it's done, you know, in a very sneaky way. But, you know, sugar is infused into so much stuff. Uh, sodas, you know, it's the carbonation, really, that your body you know, a lot of times it's craving because there, there's, there's healing and carbonation. Like if, like if you have really smelly urine, for instance, like, like I, when my urine gets like that, I drink just plain old carbonated water and it'll cleanse it out. You know, our body craves that carbonation, but then they infuse sugar in it to, to make it more marketable and then and to keep people wanting it. And then, you know, you could end up with fucking diabetes and shit like that. And so See, those are like cute addictions, candy, yeah, you know, guns, people like to buy a bunch of fucking guns and shit like that's that. That's a weird one. Uh, shopping what, in general. Oh, well, shopping. yeah, the gun. I bet. I mean, I think that's it falls into the same category as shopping uh, with guns or just like collecting, hoarding, because mm-hmm. people get people will get hundreds of guns and have them in their house. Like, what the hell are you going to do with all those guns? Bitch, you can't shoot but one at a time. Are you just like yeah. trying to Rambo this bitch and just be like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, so, 
And so this is why I tell people to shut the fuck up and don't judge people and why Jesus told people the same thing. Jesus didn't say anything about the gays, honey, but he said a lot about hypocrites because people are the same damn thing. Just if somebody didn't have a needle hanging out their arm and blood shooting up to the roof does not mean that they are not addicted. You know, they were all addicted to something. They could be addicted to gossip, drama, you know, so much. Amen. So much. Amen. On a Tuesday morning. And, um, so many, so much stuff out there. How do you think Jesus felt about free will and free choice? Like, do you think Jesus Christ, if he was alive today, would be pro-choice or pro-life? And not, I'm not saying would he be in support of abortion. I'm saying would he be in support of the government regulating it? No, because God is not about control. God has authority over all things. And he presents people's options. And then he lets people do what the fuck they want to do and deal with said consequences. If the Lord wanted to, he could have us on puppet strings and completely manipulate our every thought, action, and, and motion indeed. But th- that is not his way. And so authority is not to be used forcibly. It's to be used in a loving, guiding way. And you got to let people go through what they're going to go through. And so, no, he wouldn't tell people to not go and get an abortion. He would just be quiet and let them take their course. There's a thousand reasons why a woman might want an abortion. It's not just because she don't want the kid. There's a whole medical side to that and all kinds of shit going on. And so, so no, that's just fucking people trying to make themselves feel better by telling somebody in a vulnerable state, you know, what to do. Now, those yeah. same people who don't want her to get an abortion are all the same people who don't want black people to go out and vote or don't care if, if people black or white or other are getting shot by police on the street. So it's not about care for an unborn child because they don't give a damn about the humans who are with us now. This is about enforcing beliefs on people and it doesn't go any further than that. Yeah, I agree. I I think that certain issues just seem to really attract that kind of virulent hate for the people who have the opposing view. And it seems to be abortion is one of them and gay rights, gay marriage. That's a, a great question, actually. So why did the church take it on that that was going to be one of their like their fights. The Bible doesn't talk about gay rights for or against or gay marriage or any of that. It does. If it was that important to God, he would have mentioned it in the Ten Commandments. He he doesn't. But the thing is, when people read through the Bible, they don't care to mention or own up to the fact that it's a it's not our Bible. You know, it came from the Middle East and it was written for the Israelites. You know, now we glean our lessons and things like that from it, but, you know, we're not Israelites and we're not bound to the Mosaic Code and all of those things, the Ten Commandments and in Leviticus, it goes over, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know. You're talking Old Testament, right? Old Testament, but that's a lot of what people use to try to dominate people today. Yeah, it's my understanding that the Old Testament is, I think you're frozen. All right. I'm back. Can you hear me? Welcome back. Okay. Uh, Anyway, what I was saying. um, So it was always my understanding that the Old Testament of the Bible is like God's promise to the Jewish people and like the story of how Christ came to be. And then the New Testament is like the story of Christ's life as a human and then the formation of the church following that. And that's kind of like the section that's meant for the Gentile population is it somewhere along those lines i would say it's all one big mind of god and this is the whole thing there's no really one way to say what it is or what it isn't too much you know everybody can kind of go through there and draw their own conclusions the problems we get into is when one person thinks that their way has to be the only way and then everybody else is wrong 
And so Jesus said that all the law and the prophets and everything would be summed up in two things, to love your neighbor as yourself and to love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your spirit. It all boils down to love. But you have to look, say, in the Old Testament, deep into the historical context of it. Like the book of Leviticus has a thousand different things that people are not supposed to do um, if they're going to follow it. But the Lord did that because of what was going on in the time with them being nomads in the land around a bunch of nations. And he didn't want them to act like them. And so in the New Testament, when we get into like stuff about, you know, don't be like Sivius or or to eat that, which is abominable or whatever, those, that's not Jesus talking. Those are letters that like Paul or other apostles wrote. And so he was giving them directions that you have to look at who was doing the writing. You know, the apostle Paul, for instance, was very trained in the old ways in the old Testament. So that heavily influenced his perception and points of views on things. But like Wasn't I, his job, a Christian hunter before he became a Christian, right? He was a Christian hunter. I've never heard it put that way, but that is most accurate. He hunted them down, he persecuted, and then he killed them. Because the thing is, people were not accepted. Just because Jesus came and died and bled on the cross, the people who are the nation of Israel did not just want to allow Gentiles, people who are not, who are outside of the nation of Israel in. So like how now people want to like throw people like you and me out and stuff like that, had it been their asses back then, it would have been the original people of God telling them that they can't come in, you know, or they can't stay, because it was a fight. They had a fight on their hands for Gentiles or people who are not of the nation of Israel to be accepted. It was a whole scene. And that's what, and that's what the books of, book of Acts is about, the beginnings of the church and the fight that they had, you know, warring to incorporate and enforce the acceptance for Gentiles or so much about what was going on with them back then. But yeah, those same, like in Leviticus 18, where they're saying, you know, thou shalt not lie with man is with mankind. Well, you know, in those same books, it says things like if a woman is mistrating, she, she needs to go be by herself. And if a man busts the nut in his sleep overnight, well, he's got to go be by himself. I you think know. both of those we should bring back. Either you do all the fucking shit or you do none of it. So they, they chose to ignore the shit that would be inconvenient but they want to just pick apart the gay shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you're letting these women hang out with us on their periods, but you're kicking out the gays. That makes no sense. There's in the Bible. And so then <laughs> in the whole divorce thing, Jesus did say not to get divorced unless it is for infidelity. And mm-hmm. I don't care if somebody got divorced for infidelity or not. I don't care. I don't look at them as they're less than or they're heathen. Fuck it. It's not my business. But I do know that a thousand different people are divorced a thousand different times. And them, the ones that are telling gay people what they're not supposed to do while they're on their fifth fucking marriage. (laughs) It probably also had to do with the fact that they wanted to propagate the church. So more Christian couples who don't get divorced are going to make more Christian babies and they're going to go off and spread the gospel. So like there's also just population economics that they are probably having to think about when they were writing the document. None of their humanness got in when they were writing it down. I feel like some of it would have. It's not possible that it, it, it had to, because the only person who I would say ever had a perfect ministry would be Jesus. The writing of the Bible is a ministry, which means mm-hmm. it was done by human means. It had to be done inaccurately at some point or not quite conveyed to perfection because a human did it. Only God can be perfect. We cannot. And so therefore, no. My favorite Bible story of, about Jesus is when he went in the church and all the Pharisees are in there with their money tables and he goes in there and just fucking flips the tables and he's screaming at him and kicks them all out. 
Because it really shows that like humans, that's part of us. Part of us is the wrath and like the that righteous anger. And it was because he's still a perfect, he was still a perfect person, uh, table flipping and all. Well, I like the fact that Jesus went in there and acted a damn fool. Sometimes you just got to slap a bitch across the face. He didn't do that. But I, oh, I bet he did. Lord and beat the ass, though. He did do that. He did do that. And um, sometimes you just, that reminds me of my favorite saying from A House of Cards, which was on Netflix where Kevin Spacey got caught up in his sexual scandal. I don't care if he fucked the girls or not. I don't give a shit. I like Kevin Spacey. I ain't condoning it if he did, but I'm saying it's two, it's three sides to every story. The person who, two people and the people who was in and the people look from the outside, I wouldn't know. Either way, he's a killer actor. But he said in there, if you don't like the way the table is set, if you don't like the way some shit's going on in your life and you just flip that motherfucking bitch. Anyway, it reminded me of that. What's your favorite Bible story that teaches you something about how to live? So like my favorite story that reminded, tells us about how we ought to treat people and live. Gosh, there are so many from the Bible, but I will say this, the, the story of the rich ruler who had all that money and shit and somebody came and like begged for him or something like that. And he told them no. And then when he died, the Bible says in hell, he lifted up his eyes and, um, and then, and he saw that poor man, uh, you know, you know, resting in Abraham's bosom. And, and then he and, and, and he was like, you know, fuck. And he couldn't go back and change anything. Like, nope. He was like, if they didn't listen to the prophets who have gone before, then they won't hear you either. And I love the way how, how the Lord claps back at rich people and at people who have authority I believe that that ties in the people who run churches and stuff like that. You know, people like that are not used to people telling them no. People like that are not used to people telling them that they got to get out and they can't come back in. People like them are not accustomed to to having to go down to payday loans and get money and food stamps and stuff like that. So they don't understand the hurts of humanity. And I love that story because it's telling people who have authority over people to watch how the fuck you treat them. Because that shit's going to come back on you one day. Although it says in the Bible, he enjoyed all his riches while he lived. And it's very short-sighted when I see people fighting the gays, fighting over abortion rights, fighting for political powers, sucking Donald Trump's dick or whatever. Ew, that's gross to even say and think it about. It is gross. Oh my God. I'm people so do sorry it. I said people that. do I'm it. So sorry I said that. I'm going to have to have two <laughs> bottles of wine. It's very short-sighted because it has no eternal scope. Why go through all of that to lie to say January 6th wasn't an insurrection after you first said it was and all the bullshit, fight the gays, fight the women getting abortions, load up on guns and, you know, and everything like that just to have position and power on this earth. But when you die, none of that will follow you. You know, angels and demons alike don't give a fuck about money and guns. You know, that's human shit. So like, what does that get you? What credit does that get you? What kind of spiritual currency does that build up for you to fight over stuff like that in this earth? Nothing. Not a damn thing. Not worth it. But, you know, only fools rush in. And, you know, and Stephen is my favorite character of all people in the Bible. Stephen was only in like two chapters in the book of Acts. Stephen got killed. They murdered him. They stoned him to death. And, and they did that because he read the religious leaders of the day for absolute filth and wisdom. And he told them all about themselves and how they are the, the people who killed the prophets and they are the worst of us. So Stephen would be like me today. 
telling, you know, your Joe Osteen, your Joyce Meyer, your TD Jakes, no, y'all are hurting people. Y'all are not as, as righteous as you think. You know, you are the problem. You know, you are the worst in giving people the fuel they need to go out and spread hate, you know, by standing against the gay people, by trying to tell people they can't get abortions and stuff like that, you know. And, and they and they ran and they ran Stephen out and they killed him. And the man was highly anointed. They said when he spoke, he had the face of like it was like a face of an angel when he talked to them. Hmm. And they could care less because they were so they stopped their ears at what he was saying and they took him out. And when they stoned him, it was at the feet of Saul, who's also known as Paul, where they laid him at. And Paul was consenting unto his death. The same Paul who went on to do all this stuff for Jesus, they didn't want to hear that they were actually the problem and not the solution. So the, so those religious leaders are the same thing. Your televangelists you have today, you know, all, all of your, your rich religious rulers, you know, it's the same thing again and again in each generation. Mm-hmm. I agree. So I was talking with my mom, who's a very religious woman, just last week, and we were discussing the issue of trying to be true to yourself and true to God uh, without being a weirdo. And, and she said the phrase, I don't want to be John the Baptist. I don't want to live in the woods and eat bugs. Like, but he was doing what he was called to do by God. And do you ever feel like sometimes you're going to have to be a weirdo living in the woods, eating bugs, metaphorically, obviously, hopefully, uh, or just to do what you're called to do? Or are you pretty comfortable in your skin and in your calling? The thing I'm comfortable in my skin and in my calling because it is my calling. When you're called to do something, you're not going to feel out of place unless you try to rush and do it before God's ready for you to do it. But if you wait for him and you don't know from the time you receive your calling to the time it's time for you to do it could be 10, 20, 30 years. You know, it's not, you know, you got to pray about timing and stuff like that, you know, so you can't rush it. And so I would dare say, first of all, I think eating bugs would be a very minimalistic on brand thing to do for the times. High protein. And uh, mm -hmm, dipped in a little bit of chocolate every now and then won't hurt. I think he was using honey. (laughs) He was a fancy bitch and I love it. (laughs) But I wouldn't feel out of place. I would imagine if I were out there in the woods, there would be other people out there in the woods too chasing their callings at this point. But when you step into the community, and I, I know why you're asking that, because there are those who say the way to righteousness would wide is the road that leads to death, like it's a lonely road. I think it can be at times, especially in certain situations. But 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 the Lord is with you and you're not gonna feel abandoned. You know, you may feel loneliness but not abandoned. And the only thing, the only time that I might feel isolated is if I'm the only one, but it seems to have some common damn sense in the room, you know? So I'm like, Hey, get vaccinated. And people are like, well, no, Jesus will protect me. I don't need to get the vaccine, you know, and stuff stuff like that. Yeah. That's the only time I feel like alone. I'm like, I know I'm not the only intelligent person on this planet, you know, like that sort of thing. But in my calling, you know, but people have different callings. You know, my calling is to interact and to engage with people who other people otherwise would not. You Very know. Christ-like. You know, so I go and I go and seek people, you know, like on the social outskirts and things like that. And I try to talk to people about things that other people won't talk to them about. Now, it can seem lonely, but when I don't compare my life to whatever it is that television in the popular church has told me it's supposed to be, 
when I think about it just by itself for the value that it is, then it doesn't seem lonely anymore. Do you think that power is the problem with those other people who end up in those positions of authority and take advantage of people? Is it the money? Is it the authority? Or is it just some kind of a weird effect that happens when you start to be able to control that many people? All of it. And like my evangelist, Evangelist Nelson, my, my leader, what she told me that a preacher is going to be either really strong or really knowing. Oh, you're breaking up a little bit. Could you say that again? Yeah. And I said, it's all of those things that you just said, the money, the power, the wealth, the authority. And I'm going to throw in their pride too, an inflated ego and insecurity. Because you, you ever try to get a preacher to say they're sorry? Uh-uh. They're not going to do it. Preachers don't apologize. They don't say they're sorry. So what, what they'll say is something like, um, I don't preach this the way I used to. So what they're saying is this certain scripture or lesson, I've changed my mind about it because I was wrong, but they're just going to say, I don't preach it the way I used to and not, oh, and I'm sorry for those who I may have hurt with misinformation. You ain't going to get that from them. But like my, my leader told me that a preacher is either going to be really, really strong or really, really weak. There ain't no in between when you deal with, with preachers and people who are called to the gospel. And if they get weak and get overthrown with gluttony and greed and lust, and lust goes beyond physical attraction. It could be anything that you just want too damn much of. And um, too much, um, they're not gonna necessarily realize that they've gone off track. So they may show up at church every damn Sunday Married, say a preacher might be married, he might be fucking two, three different women in the church. It has been done. His head, he doesn't feel like he's a hypocrite for whatever fucking reason. <laughs> and now you throw money in it, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. You got churches buying that one church, I can't fucking remember, you know, multi million dollar aircraft, you know, with the church's money and the Jesus people, jets. Who with the, the Jesus jets. So, the, yeah, they're, they're overthrown by, I don't give a fuck who you are. You love money. You do. You love power. You do. Gives you more choices. And try to act like you don't. Try to act like you're just this humble servant who doesn't bat an eye at $50 million. You do. And so, and, but see, it's so subtle. And, it, and, it, they tr- and they get manipulated and deceived by it before they realize it. See, that's how yeah. it gets them. Yeah, I think so too. And like Jesus said that it's easier to pass a camel through the head of a needle than to get a rich person into the kingdom of heaven. And when I was a kid, like I grew up pretty poor. And when I was a kid, that little scripture scared the fuck out of me because I was like, nah, because I, I can't be poor forever. I mean, I, I, I got to at least try. And right. then so then I had the conflict of like pursuing wealth while at the same time, am I pursuing my own demise by like trying to get into a higher socioeconomic stratus? or yeah, status, not stratus, um, trying to reach a higher socioeconomic level always kind of felt like I was doing something wrong, uh, because of that little thing. But I really don't, I don't think so. Cause it gives you power to do good as well. Um, in, in Deuteronomy, it talks about the Lord giving us power to get wealth. King David and King Solomon are two great examples of how you could be righteous and rich. And, you know, and, and, and David talks about how he rejoices in the precepts and the knowledge of the Lord as much as in all riches. And so what this, you got to have it in perspective, understand that the Lord is the most important thing and don't become a worshiper of the money. But see, the thing is, money is also the root of all evil. Money is like an addiction or like a drug. And if you don't manage it, it's going to manage you. 
It's one thing to have a dollar. It's another thing to have a hundred billion dollars. You've got to really, 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 really mind yourself. And this is why you have a lot of people who are rich because the Lord is helping us. Because a lot of people are not going to be able to handle having a lot of money. People have had mental breakdowns. Their family has gotten on their nerves. So they did not establish boundaries. Some people don't know what they're asking for. Yeah. And Look at so, all the lottery um, winners who have had problems. Right. Like a lot of horror stories, like they go, they burn through it in a relatively short amount of time or they get bad in the drugs, end up in jail or whatever the case may be. And it seems like they would have been better off without it. And um, but no, there is no guilt in wanting to get rich. But you got to be clear again, back to the beginning of the conversation, your soul and spirit have to be intact before you go and add riches to it. So you can be in control of, of everything like that. But no, there's a biblical precedent precedent to um to to having a lot of money. So go on ahead and make your million. I'm gonna try. Podcasting isn't the most lucrative line of work. Um actually, if you don't mind changing gears a little bit, you want to talk about podcasting? Absolutely. We can do whatever gear you want to. So podcasting monetization. I am going to eventually monetize my podcast and try to make it at the very least self-supporting. And it's really not expensive to podcast. I mean, my podcast host is like 20 bucks a month and the services I use for editing are, are probably around the same and music is probably around the same. So it's like 60 to $100 a month, uh, plus the time it takes to edit it and produce it. But what are uh, your plans as far as making your podcast and your brand a business? I know you're writing a memoir, and I would also like to hear a little bit about that. Uh, but what's your what's your business strategy? My business model for monetizing my podcast is a monthly membership, and it was three ninety nine a month. I'm lowering it to two ninety nine a month. And uh, what it is, it's like so a person can get like a short version of the episode for free, but if somebody wants the full extended one, then they would need to subscribe. Um, like I do that for like certain people who I might follow on Facebook. Of course, theirs is like four or $5 a month. And so that works for me. Other people do like a whole lot of advertisements where you have to get the, the, the listenership up before people will be willing to drop ads. So I'm open to that in the future. But, and then I'm also going to add a thing to my website where a person uh, can go and just leave a one-time donation if they want to. And um, which that could be embedded, you know, into your website very easily, something like that, just a simple donation. Hey, I love it. Let me just support you. That's how Twitch, Twitch streamers do it. People just give them money because they love what they're doing in the community that they're involving, like maybe like a Twitch gamer, you mm -hmm. know, or something. And so my plan is to take my website and to make it a huge resource. Like there's a resource page on page on there. I'm building out a blog. I'm going to do a vlog. And, you know, so I'm going to have like all this stuff. And then hopefully for $2.99 a month, people will choose to support the work or they can do a one-time donation. Um, I believe that if I provide a whole lot of value that, and just let people do what they want, if they want to, then they will. I've had success with that in the past when I did like little car wash fundraises for, fundraise for military and stuff like that. I didn't charge people for the car wash. I just said, we're going to wash your cars, not a set price whatever you feel like giving us. Mm -hmm. They thought I had three fucking heads. People were looking at me like, really? Like, yes, this is how, yes, this is how we're running this. I'm the president of the booster club and, and we're boosting morale and we're making money. We're not charging anyone anything. We're just going to do the service. And some people gave 20 
most people average five. So, I mean, I got that, that, that bag of change, of course, but it, it is, I just, I, I would rather make it up in quantity than try to get like a bunch of large sales. Um, that sounds like a good and strategy. Then, and plus it allows mm-hmm. you to focus on the quality of your content instead of worrying about connecting with advertisers and making sure that you're trying to sling some products that are actually going to provide some value to your listeners. That's a lot of work, just managing that. And you're constantly doing emails and writing your show pitches to the advertisements, things like that. I think the subscription model where it's just legitimately peer-to-peer, like you're providing value, they're paying you for it, and there's no middleman, that seems like the best system. I'm trying to do the same thing. From what I understand, as your, sh- as your show grows, people will come and find you. You won't really have to go and look for them from what, I, from what I've been told. So the main thing about any kind of success with anything is to stay and don't leave, you know, and just remain consistent. And, um, and then of course, you know, books, you know, I, I am writing a memoir, which hopefully will be out this year sometime uh, in an election year. It's always good to release your books many, many months after the election because people drop a lot of political books. And so you really want to wait towards the end of the year. So is your book political? With all that. Does your no, book have political stuff? Um, I wasn't political, but they, those political books still flood the market, though. And it's such a, and then, you know, if you want your book to rank a certain way, you know, it's all going to be kind of like clustered together, from what I understand, to a degree. Mm-hmm. And so it's just better to just wait. Now, there are some things in minds that people that have crossed into the political realm. You know, it talks about the military LGBTQ issues you know, homelessness, you know, like when I was homeless and everything like that. So, I mean, since there's no longer a separation of church and state as was originally intended, yeah, I guess it does actually have some political tone. And so I, I am writing a book and I think you should too. I think anybody who's been kicked out of a church should write a book because the emotional trauma that follows is something that now we've seen the interviews with people on the news who have said it, but we didn't really did, didn't get down and dirty into what happened to them after. And you know, I'm writing it from the perspective of someone who's LGBT. You're writing it from the perspective of someone who I, who I think identifies as heterosexual, straight white man. Okay, so straight white guys. People so are really excited to hear about what we straight white men have to say these days. <laughs> you know, yeah, my sex drugs and jesus also um a, a memoir of self-destruction and resurrection and great title about, thank you thank you i labored over it i really really did that's the and, hardest part um, is coming up with titles for stuff it is all, all the business and everything is that title man because you understand that it's going to be tied to your image and your name and and you know how you know you know as a male like your image and your name is everything and so it's your identity yeah your identity man so I wanted to chronicalize everything that I had been through because I feel like that I was delivered with a strong deliverance because the foolishness that I did on the streets and got to live through it is not something to be taken lightly. And I don't feel like that it's for me to just sit quietly and live out the rest of my days and not be transparent about what happened. So we're going to talk about me being a slut, getting HIV and hepatitis B, being homeless on the street, getting kicked out of church, becoming addicted to drugs, playing the game by the game. I mean, in the criminal underworld as a drug dealer and supplier, you know, avoiding death, only, you know, a couple of times, you know, and stuff like that, because people were really, really trying to kill me. I owe people money or otherwise they didn't like me. They thought I was a snitch. I wasn't. 
snitches end up in ditches, bitches. So we do not play that. They come after you with the back, the nails at the end of it. And so, no. And so they were just jealous of me because I was great at sales. I think from having been a military recruiter and I knew customer service and I just provided value and the dope things came. Business so, is business. If business was just fucking business and I didn't cut it, step on it or dilute the drugs. I just gave people what they fucking asked for. And, and I was able to unintentionally take clients from people. But, you know, it was a dangerous thing. I don't recommend becoming a drug dealer uh, because... Honestly, man, you seem like you'd be a great drug dealer. You're personable. I wouldn't feel weird calling you. (laughs) Like uh, you get hooked up with some pretty questionable people in that world. But, you know, if I was back in the day, I'd have bought some drugs from you for sure. (laughs) And I would have uh, delivered it to you in my white Mustang as I used to do. (laughs) So like, can we talk a little bit about, I know this will probably be covered in your book, but um, the HIV positive. So that's obviously something that you're dealing with still. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so I found out I was HIV positive on December 31st, the year 2011. So it'll be the 10 year anniversary this December 31st. Yes, that's New Year's Eve. The doctor I was dealing with was a total dick and a bitch and a fucking asshole and fuck him wherever he is. And uh, how come? Because he left, he left my positive HIV diagnosis on a voicemail on New Year's Eve. Like you're oh. supposed to bring somebody into the office, have the mental health person and everything. You got to tell me this shit tonight. You know, so. God, that had to have ruined your New Year's Eve party. <laughs> and so it was, I didn't let it. I, I, I walked outside the club to get the voicemail at around 1130 p.m. because I had a feeling what it was. And so I was like, let me just check this shit. And so I, I listened to it. Then I like bawled my eyes out and cried, mascara, everything running. But I didn't want my, I didn't want to ruin the night for my friends. And so I went back into F bar. This is where we're in Houston, Texas and Montrose. And I was just partying with my friend who's also my attorney and then my other home girl. And I didn't tell them anything. I just partied like it was my last New Year's Eve. I didn't know anything about living with HIV. Everybody who I knew who had it died. And there were still people in Houston dying of AIDS at the time. So it's not like, it's not like, it's not like it was unfathomable. And so I just figured that I would be dead in eight months. And so I was like, damn, it's my last New Year's Eve. And then, and it just got worse from there. I tried to go back to work and then I kept crying and I was all depressed and shit. And it was just also very dramatic. And so then I just like stopped going to work. At that time, I was a substation electrician at Centerpoint Energy making 30 to $70 an hour. You know, I was, you know, you know, living in Houston you know, had a very full life. And this was not like other problems I had had. It wasn't getting any better. I was like, I'll figure it out. Something always works out. No, this was a different sort of trauma. I didn't understand it. And so I just closed off from everybody who I should have embraced everybody, but I just became recluse. And then I got reckless with my drug dealing. So then I ended up in jail three, four days later for the first time. Or in, um, and, and then after that, you know, it just spiraled. And then I just got worse and worse. I didn't tell my parents. The only person I, I, I let my boss listen to the voicemail. It's like I couldn't say that I was HIV positive. It was just, yeah. and I texted my friend and attorney. Other than that, I told nobody nothing for like months and months and months. And, um, and then, and so that, and that belief that I was going to die took away my will to live and so then therefore I became even less scrutinous of people. I just let anything go. I just started saying yes to everything, even more so than what I was. 
and, and then a couple of months later, you know, the SWAT team came to raid me. Got ya. Mm-hmm. I ain't gonna say I wasn't mad. Um, I mean, it was so like typical gangster shit, like your right hand man snitches you out. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. But um, but when you don't think that you're going to live and you think you're partying your last days out, it makes you like your belief system and your inner working things and your mind subconscious drive your actions. And so I'm thinking I'm not going to be here less than a year anyway. So fuck it. If you want to take the shit, take it. You know, I let people walk over me and all kinds of shit like that during those days and times I had like no self-respect, no self-restraint, no boundaries, no nothing. I just threw everything out. Almost and, sounds um, like a slow suicide. It was like, it was inevitable. And so I was just like letting it happen slowly. And, um, I was a little relieved when the cops came. Now we're talking helicopters, uh, about 30, 40 men and face shields, semi-automatic rifles, Kevlar vests, <laughs> you know, canines for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so um, I mean, I'm just going to say the people I was getting my joke from was moving like a few keys a day, you wow. know, and I was just selling like, you know, a couple of little dime baggies here and there. You know, I was moving weight. And so, um, but I was relieved. I felt a sense of relief because they they intercepted this collision course, this fucking vicious cycle I was in. You know, I didn't know where to go. I didn't want to go back home because I felt like I would, God, be ashamed and embarrassed because I failed. You know, my job is gone. I didn't got HIV. And I had emotions related to HIV that I did not anticipate the guilt. I felt guilty. I felt contagious, uh, you know, and I was a big dancer. I loved to go out and dance. I would go out to the club seven nights a week. That's why I moved to Montrose to the gay district in Houston. So I could go to go to the club. And so, and not have to like wreck my car. Like I had done the other one. And so, um, but I felt ashamed and guilty and everything like that. And this barrage of emotions that I just could not, deal with and um and so I just didn't deal with it and so I just I think that was when my getting high became an emotional crutch and I didn't realize it and um I mean like no medication for the HIV or the hepatitis until I was in jail for the third time in September of 2012. So that'd be 10 months after diagnosis or nine ish yeah in there somewhere nine ish. Cause I was in there. I don't know exactly. I was in jail from like September to Thanksgiving. So I don't know at what point in that two month period, they had me go down to the infectious disease doctor. So I you really pretty was- much got the diagnosis and then just decided it's done and you're just going to go out with a bang. Yeah. I'm going Tony Montana this. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an extreme personality. I've come to realize and I really didn't think of myself as somebody who was like extra or who had an extreme personality at the time. For me, I was just being myself. But now in, in hindsight, now that I'm more aware of myself, and this is why it's important for us to get our spirits and stuff aligned. Yeah, knowing that I have a tendency to be extreme causes me to pay attention to when I'm becoming extreme. And now I know how to dial it back. Now, the only reason I got into drugs was after I got kicked out of church. And then I started accepting drugs from guys at the clubs, whereas before I had rejected them when I was still involved in the church. Because I stopped praying, I stopped fasting, I stopped tithing, which I don't believe in tithing anymore because I have a whole different school of study and thought on that. 
And I just abandoned all things God, which was a shame considering that I had way more history with him outside of Lakewood Church than what I did at Lakewood Church. I should never have done that. So since I was not spiritually grounded any with any type of way, I allowed myself to be open to the to, to things that previously I would very easily have rebuked and said no to, and that we contract HIV so and hepatitis B. So am I blaming the church for what I did? No, it was my choice to go out and do the things, but I am blaming them for breaking my heart and causing me to be vulnerable, to put me in a position that I wasn't before. You're, that's your family and they abandoned you. Right. That That's a reasonable response to that experience. To say that you could now accept these drugs that before you would have easily rejected, it goes right back to that point we were talking about earlier where your environment had suddenly changed. And now you're in an environment where you were not supported and you were more alone than you were before. So these drugs all, all of a sudden seem like a good solution. Right. And then when you're on drugs, even if look, and I never really cared for sex with condoms anyway. It's no good. You know. It, right. It's not. I mean, kind of the what aren't even 100 years old. Yeah. I, you know, I hear they kill more people than they save. <laughs> yeah. The murderers. That's one thing I agree with the Catholic Church on, you know, you know, no condom. <laughs> I got to I'm not saying condoms are a sin. I'm not that extreme with it. But, you know, they freaky over there. And so. Um, <laughs> oh, because, yeah. And they, um, you know, and when you do drugs, it makes you even less. You know, this makes you want to do any fucking thing when you're high, you know, and, you know, and I never was one for condoms anyway. So even more so when I had a bunch of drugs in my system all the time, you know, I let them guys do with me whatever they wanted to. And I was delighted to have them do it. <laughs> so <laughs> a little disinhibited with the drugs. Mm -hmm. It really lowers your inhibitions, especially like meth you know, which I eventually, that was the last thing I got into. I, you know, I, I was like, I will never do meth, not meth, never, never, never. And then eventually, oh, fuck it. You know, why not? I'll try. It's weird how we have different drug baskets. Like you have your caffeine and tobacco over here, one basket, and then you have your, your party drug, like the drugs that are acceptable by society, but still taboo, like, you know, MDMA or, or, you know, LSD. And then you have the bad drugs like heroin and crystal meth. And those are over here in a different basket and you can't touch those ones. They're, they're all drugs. And it's like, you can use them all in a dangerous way. You can use them all in a safe way. It's just like, you got to know what you're doing. They're tools. They're essentially tools. Yeah. You got to, was it the Japanese military? Yes. Uh, trying to keep their third soldiers awake and energetic. The scientist's name was Ogata. Mm -hmm. So it's all in how you use it. Now, see that that hateful shit there right there, what you were just talking about, Jeff, was the bullshit that I cut out of my trap house. And a trap house is where the, the fucking drug dealers hang out at for people who may not know what a trap house is. Oh, my audience knows the trap house. <laughs> I, I, I figured, you know, I figured they would. And so, um, but they, the, you know, the motherfuckers would come in there like literally trying to be like, you know, we don't fuck with heroin because they're just really fucked up. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You can't be shooting up one thing and then talking about somebody else who's shooting up another one. And then the, the, the stupidest thing of all, we all be in there getting high, injecting this, shooting up that. And then somebody, oh, like take out like a pack of Marlboros and be like, is it cool if I smoke this in here? <laughs> like, no, man, those will kill you. <laughs> and so like, as I've got my meth pipe, I'm like... Bitch, I don't care if you 
smoking in here or not, just go do something. Yeah. So I just, there's just no logic to it. But that prejudice and the, 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 the desire for humans to want to judge somebody else to make themselves feel better is found in dope houses from the, the cokehead telling the meth head that he really needs to straighten out his fucking life or the preacher who's fucking everybody in their church trying to tell the gay people they shouldn't be getting married, you know? <laughs> yeah, that nails it. That's just humanity. That's the dark, the dark part of our nature that will just eke its way into every aspect of life. Or the woman who's gotten abortions before trying to tell somebody else not to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it has been done, but you know, that's why I love podcasts like this, you know, where people, you know, it's a judgment-free zone. It's a a lot of different perspectives and not one is touted more than the other, but the common theme, you know, is love and acceptance and self-improvement. And I feel like if people focused on their self and love We wouldn't get into so much hate cloaked in righteousness. The thing is, a lot of people like to say, oh, you know, it's fixable. You can just take pills for it. You can live a long life. But when something, when you feel like your body's been invaded by a military of many parasites and you can't just get it out of you, you you don't, you're not trying to hear all of that about how great it can be and all of that. No, no, you really got to focus on your mental health. Even today, people still have issues. Now, there are people who go out there and get HIV intentionally. It does happen. Bug chasers. That, yeah, that's called getting bugged. So, so, that, so the, the theory there is that if I get HIV, then I can get rid of the anxiety catching. Um, hopefully that's lessened with like Trivada and um, pills you can take to prep. It's called prep to prep you so that you don't get it if you couldn't come in contact with it. Um, so hopefully people are prepping, you know, out there for it and taking prep. But um, but if you do get it, it's, it's still not that simple. It's still a big deal. And why is that? Because of the way we have been mind fucked into believing it is. So the media, they're always showing us to shrivel up people with, with, with AIDS back in like the 90s and stuff like that. When I grew up, you know, they never gave it to you from two different perspectives. You know, you shrivel up and turn into a, a puzzle of pus on the ground and some shit like that. And so, but you can also look is, like magic Johnson, who's still to this day, a towering, healthy looking strong man. Yep. He's a beautiful black ball man. And, um, and there, we need more of us in the world, but the few success stories, him, I think Mary J. Blige, Mary J. You know, Blige is HIV success. positive. Oh, that's, I love Mary J. Blige. I always have. We'll look that up. I'll fact check it because I know, I know damn well she got addicted to drugs. Really? <laughs> so, well, her music is really good. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But definitely I know it was her and, and it was that same reaction, but you would think, Oh, not Mary, anybody, but Mary. That's exactly. You know, it's the, it's the, and I thought the same thing too, but, and people thought the same thing about, me probably isn't for the drug dealer part, maybe not the HIV part because I was a loose, I was a loosey. But um, but you know, it could be our neighbor next door. And this is why I love being transparent about things and saying everything. Because sometimes I wonder, maybe had my parents been more transparent about their struggles, or people who I knew, friends and stuff, had told me they had HIV, you know beforehand maybe i would not have felt so alone when i finally came up against something that i could not prevail against 
But, you know, when our parents try to act like they always have it together, I didn't feel like I could go to them. You know, that atmosphere was not created in my household. And, you know, my friends, all of us trying to be cute, trying to act like everything that's working because we were trying to be more than what we were, you know. And so this is why I don't mind being deconstructed, saying the mistakes I made, talking about the bad decisions that I that I did and where it went wrong, where I think it went wrong. And hopefully that transparency can be comforting to somebody else. I feel like we, I feel like I owe it to humanity. I share that feeling. I think that we do. Just the fact that we've had experiences in life and there are other people who are about to go through the same stuff and we've already passed through it and are out on the other side of it. And there's, there's, there are ways that you can make it through that stuff easier. I think that we're obligated. And by we, I mean, all of, all of humanity, all of the adult world, it's obligated to share those things with the next generation to, to help them prepare. And hopefully that next generation will be more loving and they will tell the truth, starting with themselves and starting with other people and then allow people to be themselves. They I have a question about that, letting people be themselves. So there uh -huh. is a huge disconnect politically and culturally today. And I don't even know how to refer to this group accurately because of the way they're portrayed by the media, but it seems like a lot of very Republican leaning, conservative, maybe racially racist. I don't know. They might be racist. Are we, are we allowed to move into a space where we can love enough to where we even love the people who are maybe assholes or bigots or like, are we to be tolerant of people who are clearly should we be tolerant of people's intolerance or should we stand up and say, no, that's not right. You need to change the way you are. I will stand up and say, no, it's not right. I'm not going to tell somebody they, they need to change the way they are because that's exactly what they're telling me. Um, so that's the extent of my tolerance to rebuke it. But we, even when I'm rebuking it or standing against it is to the benefit of somebody who is not of a strong enough mind yet to not be influenced by people who were trying to change them. I am not trying to change Lindsey Graham, Donald Trump, Steve Mnuchin, Mitch McConnell, special cases in this world. And then the Lord said he's created the wicked for the day of destruction. So he's not going to take all wickedness out of this earth like that anyway. I don't think it's for us to try to change, but to educate and promote people, promote for people to become spiritually independent and free thinkers. Yes. Now, I'm not about to engraft somebody closely into my life who is anti-LGBTQ. The alphabet mafia, that's what we are. <laughs> um, I'm not about to engraft them into my life because my people get killed and murdered every day because somebody don't think that we should be living the life that they think we're living. Now, they don't actually know what we're doing because they don't hang out with us. They just have an, a construct in their mind. Now, everybody can imagine what anal sex is like because they think, but not every gay person has anal sex. But, you know, have, you know I've, some, I've heard before that more straight people do anal sex than what we do because it's not really all that taboo for us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, that's like, you know, it's been done. So I, I establish firm boundaries. I can, I can fuck with people who think that being gay is a sin, but they also have that opinion about a thousand other things, but they don't think we're going to go to hell. They're just kind of like, God sees all sin as the same. So you being gay, not a big deal. If you want to get married, great. 
you know, probably not the best, but you're not going to burn hell for it. But, you know, they're, they're just drawing all kinds of conclusions on all kinds of things. Do you see they're that not- as progress? Progress? I think for that person that it's a very neutral mentality to be in because they're not hyperbolizing the homosexual movement, you know, like conservatives. They're just saying this is a, a thing to me, like all these other things, adultery or murder, but not one is greater than the other. Fuck it. I no. think that murder is probably worse. I would say that murder is worse than being gay. It is. That's, that's just me. In, t- in terms of damage, yes. But they're looking at it from like, does God view the one worse than the other? I know. But it thing. seems to, to me right. that see, that feels like it's trivializing y- your existence and, and, and almost saying like, yeah, you're messed up, but I forgive you. Oh, it is trivializing. And I'm not saying I like it, but, uh, but that, that is the extent of me being humble and being willing to work with somebody who is not for my lifestyle, I'll, I can do business with somebody like that. If they, for whatever, in within themselves, feel like they need to draw conclusions about other people's lifestyle, but at least they're drawing conclusions about many different things and not just gay people. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. I'm saying I like it. I would prefer them to shut the fuck up about all of it. But, but most certainly not somebody who's against, uh-uh. It's not, yeah. it's not safe. I don't trust people like that. That seems like a very healthy it, outlook. Just to clarify, it seems like you're saying that you're letting people have their space to be wrong. You're letting people have their space to believe what they want to believe, uh, but you're putting up firm boundaries that it's not going to damage you or your life. And you're going to be able to stay the way you believe. You can't come to the party. You can't come to the kiki if you if you if you are against LGBTQIA people. I don't I don't believe gay people should go to churches that do not affirm our lifestyles. We should not support places financially. So fuck you, Chick-fil-A. I don't need your greasy ass burger, no way. None of that. You know, if you're gonna be against us and you don't get to benefit from having us around in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Fashion is But if you're, as, don't even get me started on somebody who's in clothes designed by a gay man telling us what we're not supposed to be doing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> And so, <laughs> but the Lord would deal with them for all, all, he would deal with all of them for all of their hypocrisy one day. But no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying that they are different. I don't want to cross into that territory because when I start to tell somebody else that they're wrong, Jeff, that's when I can become a hypocrite. And, and, and the Lord talked a lot about hypocrisy. I don't want to get in trouble for being a hypocrite. Me being a hoe, the Lord, when Jesus was crucified, the murderer, the one who wasn't talking shit to him, he was like, this day you will be with me in paradise. The Lord forgave him. Cool. Done. Hypocrisy? The Lord does not have patience for hypocrisy. <laughs> you know, you're, not, you're not going to get into heaven being a hypo- hypocrite. It's not going to work. It's so damaging to all- his whole mission. Hypo- hypocrites are, are going to harm God's mission. If his mission is to teach everybody the mm-hmm. truth, hypocrites are damaging in that process. And like Madonna said in her song, Hollywood, at the end, you know, you know, she's bored with the concept of right and wrong. It's not that simple. And so, so no, I keep, I, I draw firm boundaries. Uh, you, you voted for Donald Trump. No, bitch, get out of my house. But you, we'll call, I'll call you, uh, you know, you're not vaccinated, but you want to come to the, come to the, to, to the Kiki and, then a kiki is just gay speak for like a house party or some shit like that. Okay. So you're not, you're not vaccinated and you want to come to a kiki? No, bitch. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, at what point you become like a 
threat. Like one guy who I deleted from Facebook didn't understand why I did not like Trump. I was like, let me see. He's homophobic. He grabs women by the pussy. He um, brags about it and brags about it. You know, all braggadocious and and bombastic and shit. Um, You know, he calls Mex, you know, Hispanic people rapists and, you know, and things like that. And then I'm black and openly LGBTQIA, whatever fucking letter I feel like that day. And you really have to ask me why I'm not voting for, why I don't like Donald Trump. Delete. Like, I can't do anything with that. And, you know, and that sort of person is, is going to come around me trying to be my friend, but you're going to vote for someone to hurt my community. So, see, therefore, that person is a danger to me because you're going to put people in office who's going to try to hurt me. And you know that they will. And so. Yeah. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Now, I don't hate them. I don't I don't think that they're terrible people, but our differences put me at a disadvantage if I let you get close to me. I see I'm not looking at him going, you're a white male. Hmm. Let me see what I can stop you from doing today. You know, I don't you know, so like I'm no threat to him. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Yeah. There's nobody I go, hmm, let me see what I can stop y'all from doing. Like when I got kicked out of church, it wasn't because I did anything. The parents had started murmuring because of my style, because I wear like cowboy boots or like, you know, true religion jeans. They're like, my style was making them uncomfortable, you know, and shit like that, you know. So then the the people at Lakewood started asking me, well, do you have a girlfriend and all of this? You know, because the parents were complaining. They weren't thankful I was there working with their fucking children for free. They were they were concerned because they, like, they think gay people are pedophiles. Oh, you're going to make uh, their kids gay somehow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from that angle. Maybe I could rub off. On yeah, it's contagious. Mm-hmm. People, people are just afraid of what they don't know. But the thing they are, and my evangelist, evangelist Nelson, my mentor said that people do not understand homosexuality and therefore they reject it. And then they cause all these scenes and everything like that. And so... But I'm very vocal about it, all of the things because maybe the assholes who throw you out of church like they did you or me don't even sit there and think about what is going to happen to us when we leave. And I was mad because none of those people who I had volunteered with at Lakewood for two, three years called me to see what happened, where I went, what happened, none of that. Like, I was a heretic, which it would be kind of cool to be called a heretic. I don't know if you've seen that that show Shadow and Bone on Netflix, but uh, the heretic is this, this hot ass, like badass dude he's all like wicked and evil with the black magic and shit and so yeah whatever I, yeah it's I'll got a bit a of a vibe shit. i've been called a fornicator yeah, but never a heretic <laughs> a fornicator that, that, that's another term that church guys use to control people yeah <laughs> so it's like you know they just want you to do it their way or you're out and it's like what message are you sending you can't be perfect ever so mm-hmm. So that means there's certain things that they want to isolate and pick apart because no teacher, no preacher, no nothing is completely sin free. And these preachers who want to get on TV and act all good, uh, when they get home, they cussing, they having orgies, they doing drugs. Don't give them no more credit than what is. We're all just people. So people like to feel good. And fornicators, having sex outside of marriage is not, I don't think it's a sin. I think it's smart. And people get that from... There really isn't, the fornicating in the Bible really has more to do when people would worship other gods. God felt cheated on when people would worship something and view them as the source of all their needs and comfort and safety. You know, what you do with your dick, pussy, bussy, and bussy is just like a, a man, pussy, and, okay. uh, or vagina. 
our vagina. That's clever. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, God, I ain't really all that concerned about that. It's like it when people seems have like open- he wouldn't be. I don't know why he would care all that much. It's like when people have open relationships and they're like, well, my heart is going to be with my primary partner, but I want to have sexual experiences with different people, but they don't get my heart. They just get my body, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, no, the fornicating in the Bible had a lot to do with like temple worship, idol or temple sex rituals for idol worship and stuff like that. And when you look at the full context of what's going on historically in the Middle East back then, people who use the word fornicate to try to tell you you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, I disagree. But these same fools are the same people who used to say that forks were evil, utensils were evil because the devil has a pitchfork. So if you use a fork, then this is a tool of the devil. And so that's why people used to eat with like their hands and shit yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot back in the day. Symbols, <laughs> symbols make a big difference in how people feel about things. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, Devanna, I think we should probably wrap this up. This has been a great conversation. I'm really happy with how this went. I'm excited about going on your show next week. Absolutely. We will be so glad to have you. And I thank you for spending quality time with me and uh, for allowing me to come on your show. And we will tag team and do it again. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week. Have a good yes, one. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ramble by the River with Jeff Nesbitt. Please come on back next week and we'll do it all again. Thanks again, guys. Don't forget to check out patreon.com slash ramble by the river to support the show. Love you guys. Thanks. Bye.